Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 12:28-29. This is the word of God. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're so grateful uh, to come to your word this morning. Uh, we're all perhaps coming from different places, certainly. Uh, some of us need to be encouraged, Lord. Some of us need to be healed. Some of us are down and need to be lifted up. But some of us need to be confronted by your word. Some of us need to repent of things, be confronted by your holiness and what you demand. All of us need to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would do all these things in us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. About a hundred years after Jesus ascended into heaven, there lived an early Christian theologian named Marcion. He is most known for being denounced as a heretic because he argued that the God of the gospel of Jesus Christ was a God of grace and love. So far, so good. But unfortunately, he also argued this was a different God from the wrathful, judging God of the Hebrew Bible. In other words, the Old Testament should be rejected. And he came up with his own canon of scripture, which included 11 of our New Testament books and none from the Old Testament. Though his views were categorically rejected by the church as Marcion heresy, his ideas have never fully died out. They're just more subtle today. In fact, there was a well-known evangelical pastor just a few years ago who made waves in the broader church by insisting that we unhitch ourselves as Christians from the Old Testament. We should focus only on the New Testament for our growth in the Christian life and ignore the Bible that Jesus read and affirmed as infallible. That idea is just as wrong-headed today as it was in the second century. But you can see why people might want to do that, can't you? It's difficult to explain in our age of tolerance why God would wipe out the Canaanites, men, women, and children, or why he would kill a well-meaning person like Uzzah who just trying to make sure the Ark of the Covenant doesn't fall on the ground. Jesus is Lord, but he seems so much more approachable and gracious, where the Old Testament God is more wrathful, more obsessed with holiness. Or is he? One of the things I hope we will glean from our scripture today is to affirm that the God of the Old Covenant and the God of the New Covenant are one and the same. He hasn't changed. He is a God of love and grace. He's also a God of uncompromising holiness and justice, and he's not to be trifled with. I, you, have one life to live on this earth. And the most important question of that life by far is how you relate 
to this one God. And I invite you to follow along in your sermon outline as we consider together one bad example, one heavenly mountain, and one final warning. First, let's read together starting in verse 14. I invite you to follow along in your own Bibles. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Back in chapter 11, we saw the members of the Hall of Faith, as we called it. Where Esau would be in the Hall of Shame. We might call him the anti-Moses. If you remember back in chapter 11... We looked at Moses. He gave up earthly pleasures for the sake of the kingdom. Because the things and people of God were of such great value to him. Esau, conversely, gave up the kingdom for the sake of earthly pleasures. Because the things and the people of God were of such little value to him. Esau is the quintessential apostate. One who walks away from the faith part of a key family in the history of the people of God, the firstborn of Isaac, who was the promised son of Abraham, the one through whom the great promises would come. Esau squandered all that for the sake of earthly pleasures. The author is warning against the impact of apostasy in the community. People like Esau, who have walked away from the faith, see to it, That no one is immoral and unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. As we run the race of faith, as referenced in in verse 1 of chapter 12, we're instructed to lay aside every weight and sin that holds us back. Alex Strauch's going to be back next week. He's feeling better, praise the Lord. He'll be preaching on the first two verses for us then. But Hughes notes... Two appetites that can torpedo the race, sexual and physical appetites. And Esau embodies both of them. He had unchecked sexual desires for which he went after the the Hittite women, the pagan wives he took for himself for his gratification, completely ignoring his father's instruction and the purity of the covenant family. And his physical appetites. He despised his birthright. What are these promises to me? I'm hungry. Who cares about this covenant and future blessings? I want satisfaction now. Man, how relevant is Esau to our culture today? Sex, pleasure, instant gratification, consuming what I want, when I want. As I said, Esau is the anti-Moses. Moses gave up all these things to inherit the promise, choosing instead to suffer with the people of God. As Hughes says, Esau was a living beer commercial. Bearded macho with two things on his mind, sexual pleasure and physical pleasure. Food, drink, sports, sleep, sex. The things of God were of such little value 
to him. Esau demonstrates what one life to live means if you have an earthbound mentality. You only go around once. Well, he missed the blessing. And then it hit him. Jacob has it all. Sorry, none left. He was rejected for never repenting, though he sought the blessing with tears. It doesn't mean he sought repentance with tears. No sign he sought repentance at all. It means he sought the blessing with tears. Bless me, Father, remember? But Isaac only had words of judgment for him. Too late. He'd already turned his back on the promises. The quintessential apostate. He regretted, like Judas did, but there was no change in his heart. So the author uses this bad example of Esau to exhort this congregation to strive for peace and holiness in you and your church. Back up in verse 14, the word, this word strive is make every effort in the NIV. Make every effort for two things, peace and holiness. Peace with each other in this context, especially people in your church family. This is the horizontal command. Then the vertical command, holiness with God. Let's take holiness with God first. Like a lot of commands in the New Testament, there's something that's true about us because of what Christ has done for us and to us and in us. And then we need to pursue that. We need to pursue the identity he's secured for us. Become who you are, you might have heard it said. For instance, Paul, the apostle, says we're clothed with Christ. Then he says we need to put on Christ. Well, if I'm clothed with Christ, why don't I need to put Christ on? Well, you do. <laughs> That's how transformation and sanctification works. It's also the way genuine faith plays out in your life, the kind of faith that endures, that demonstrates itself as genuine. This endurance is a key theme of Hebrews. Don't fall away. Hold fast to Jesus because he holds fast to you. Likewise here, in this passage, we receive holiness because of what Christ has done as our high priest. We've seen that throughout Hebrews. And then we need to pursue that holiness. Okay? No one will see God without holiness, he says. Don't be like Esau, assuming the promises, but living how you want. That doesn't work. Don't be like so many Israelites who were set free from Egypt, given the freedom identity in the Lord God, but then rebelled and died in the wilderness. They started, they didn't finish. His audience and us, we need to press on. We need to pursue the holiness already achieved for you by Christ. And then horizontally, pursue peace with one another, especially, again, in your church family. Okay, this peace cannot be divorced from holiness. They must go together. This is really important. When you try to have peace with people in your church and ignore holiness, sin will run rampant. That's what he warns against in verse 15. A root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble for the whole congregation. By, By it, many become defiled. The apostle Paul says something similar, but he says it this way. A little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. You let sin go, it will corrupt everybody. Unchecked sin in the church will destroy the church. This is why church discipline is so important. Why caring for one another's holiness in in their lives is so important. Tying this to last week's passage, when people are suffering, 
They can misunderstand God's discipline. They can become bitter. False beliefs lead to false conduct. This can lead to all kinds of sin, including immorality. I'm tired of holiness. It's not worth it. I'd rather have what I want. I'd rather get what I want now. They can be like Esau. This root of bitterness he mentions is an allusion to Deuteronomy 29, where Moses warns against those in the, in the community of God's people who are turning away from the Lord. Okay, very similar to the Hebrew situation. They're like a root of bitterness or rotten fruit that will contaminate the community. This, is so, this idea is so significant. The Apostle Peter closes his second letter this way. Listen, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Okay, same thing. But grow, rather, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. That's those Peter's last words to us. This is why immorality or other kinds of sin must be dealt with in the local church or it will eternally destroy the lives of others. So obviously... This isn't just a command for us individually. Okay, we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in our church family. This isn't just for the pastors either. Okay, see to it, he says, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it, no one follows the bad example of the immoral Esau. We must watch out for each other. This is why it's so important not to miss out on the fellowship. Because it's God's means to preserve you in the faith. We've seen that throughout Hebrews. He says back in chapter 10, do not forsake meeting together. It's so important. When we see people missing, brothers and sisters, we need to reach out because it's not good. Let me return to our one bad example, Esau, for a minute. He is a man of our times, isn't he? People today want the blessing without repentance. They want to identify as a Christian without obeying the word of God. They want to have eternal life without changing the way they live. They want Jesus as their Savior, but not as their Lord. I want to eat my stew and porridge now, but still get the blessing later. Esau demonstrates what we see throughout the scripture. It doesn't work that way. In the New Covenant... You choose Jesus, the Gospels. This is what is repeated over and over. Forsaking all other gods, all other priorities, all other loves for him. He's the treasure you find in the field that's worth selling everything so you can buy that field. He's the one, even Jesus says this, you love so much that your relationship to anyone else, even family members, is like hatred by comparison. Esau turned his back on the future promise. Think how much worse to turn your back on Christ. Cockerell says this, to abandon Christ would be to spurn the one who fulfilled the promise Esau disregarded. Young people, don't throw away future eternal blessings for earthly, temporal pleasures. Never think, like maybe Esau did, I can always repent later. It doesn't work that way. When you do not repent, when your life is not a life of repentance, something in your heart changes as it relates to your relationship with God. 
a root of bitterness. Esau went past the point of no return. Don't let that happen to you. Keep short accounts with God. Turn from any sin or root of bitterness before it's too late. And likewise, in the ones we love, in the lives of the ones we love. Second, let's consider one heavenly mountain. Let's start reading in verse 18 through verse 24 together. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This section references some of the main themes we've seen throughout the letter, doesn't it? Angels, heaven, Firstborn, perfection, covenant, sprinkled blood. Ultimately, the author compares and contrasts two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Sinai is associated with the old covenant in Exodus, where, the, where Moses received the law from God, and as we will consider, it was terrifying. Zion is associated with Jerusalem, where the new covenant was inaugurated. In the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, this covenant was, as we've considered in previous chapters, ratified in the heavenly realms. And as we will consider, there's incredible joy resulting from these heavenly realities of what Jesus has accomplished. So first, let's consider the terror of Sinai. Remember back in chapters 9 and 10 when the author explained how much better was the new covenant than the old. The Old Covenant was really effective to demonstrate our separation from God because of His holiness and our sin. We certainly see that as we consider the the sacred spaces of the tabernacle and, and the temple. But even before that, we have Mount Sinai. Whenever they came to the mountain of the law, they're reminded of their separation from God. We see it here. It was untouchable. Even if an animal came to the mountain, it was put to death. There was a blazing fire. It was dark, gloomy, stormy. The trumpet blast and voice were so fearful that the people were terrified. Even Moses was terrified. And the people begged, please, no more words. As someone has said, I guarantee you no one fell asleep during that worship service. (laughs) The first covenant was great, and it was fearful. They could not endure the order that was given. The law by itself offered no comfort. There was nothing in the law in and of itself that enabled your obedience. It's only a barometer of your sin and unworthiness, only indictment, a reminder of how separated you are from God and your desperate need for the sacrifices. It's characterized by fear. The terror of Sinai is contrasted with the joy of of Zion. Zion is an inviting mountain. Everything about Sinai says stay away. 
Zion has come. All the difference is Jesus Christ, who has removed all that stood between us and God for the believer. It doesn't mean God's less holy or he decided to compromise on his standards so we can come in. No. It means Jesus is that amazing. And what he's done on the cross is that profound. Despite no change in God's holiness, in Christ we can approach this God of Sinai by going through Zion. The judge has welcomed us in. Not on the basis of our own righteousness. We would die instantly. But on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the new covenant high priest. This referenced here, the heavenly assembly of all who have been made righteous by his blood, enrolled in heaven with a celebration of joy that awaits us with angels in festal gathering. How encouraging to these Hebrew believers as it should encourage us. They're beat down. Their patience, perseverance is wearing thin. And we're not as transformed or sanctified as we'd like to be. But as Philip said, I love this. Remember, we're destined not just for improvement, but for glory. Think about this as it relates to being patient with others in our church family. Maybe we're rough around the edges, bothersome, wish we were, they were sanctified more or transformed. Try to see them not as they are now but as they will be in glory in the heavenly city, perfected. Or when you're in despair over your own sins, it can be so frustrating, can it, over our lack of growth, struggling with the same kinds of sins day after day. Take a moment and look ahead to Zion. See that you will be perfected and press on to Zion with joy. Because Jesus is the grounds of your acceptance. Look ahead to Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. All of this points to the future kingdom. The abiding city, our heavenly homeland. Verse 24 reminds us that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Well, the blood of Abel, an innocent man who died cries out a curse for vengeance, retaliation. But the blood of Christ, also innocent, of course, cries out not for vengeance or retaliation. It cries out forgiveness and atonement. That's a much better word, isn't it? As Philip says about Abel and Jesus, they were both killed by their brothers. Abel killed by his brother Cain, Jesus killed by his fellow Jews. But instead of a rallying cry to retaliate and take vengeance, he offers forgiveness. Redemption is a better word than revenge, isn't it? Oh, friend, run to Mount Zion. It's your only hope. As we think about the comparison, Sinai and Zion, you might be reminded of Paul's comparison in Galatians where he contrasts Sinai and the heavenly Jerusalem with the illustration of Hagar and Sarah and their respective sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the result of Abraham not trusting in the promise, trying to do things on his own, birthed in Ishmael. Isaac was a result of believing the promise. Do not be enslaved back to Sinai. 
The promise is here. The fullness of time has come. Go to Zion. To which mountain are you running? Are you running to to Zion, the promise, Jesus, the fulfillment? Or are you running back to Sinai in your own effort? God's not there anymore. As painful as it sometimes is, I have followed the travails of a certain Minnesota football team for over 40 years now. And Mike Kruger recently reminded me that the Vikings' woes started before I was born. Jim Marshall was a defensive end, one of the famous defensive linemen called the Purple People Eaters. In 1964, in a game against the 49ers, he recovered a fumble and ran 66 yards into the end zone, which you'd think would be a great play. But unfortunately, he went the wrong way to the wrong end zone. Consider that all of his excitement, his energy, his hard work, his training, his might, his focus, his determination we're all channeled into going the wrong direction. Let's make sure we're running to the right end zone. Let's make sure we're running the race to the right finish line, not running to the wrong finish line. This is what we do when we run to to Mount Sinai. You can put all your effort, even moral living, right religious training, good things, generosity with your money and your time. It can all be channeled to the wrong mountain. Now that Jesus has come, it's all about Zion. Now with the new covenant has arrived as promised, the days of Sinai are over. God is no longer there. Running to Sinai now is just running away from God. It's running on your own efforts. Running toward a celebration of your own accomplishments, which will only result in eternal condemnation and separation from God. Running to Zion is running in the promise of the new covenant. Running on the strength of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Running toward a celebration, yes, but not a celebration of what you've accomplished, but a celebration of what Jesus Christ has done to enroll you in that heavenly city. The one who made us righteous and perfect by his blood to the glory of God with innumerable angels in festal gathering rejoicing. There's only one heavenly mountain. Make certain that's where you're headed. Finally, now we come to one final warning. Let's start reading in verse 25 to the end. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the last warning in Hebrews against apostasy, turning away from the faith. We've seen four earlier warnings thus far. Warnings to not fall away, but to hold fast to Jesus to the very end. 
Warnings to not give up, but press on to maturity in the faith. Warnings not to leave the new covenant blessings for something else. Warnings to repent before it's too late to do so. And now this is the fifth and final warning in the book. Do not refuse the king of the unshakable kingdom. As with the previous warnings, there's grave danger of apostasy. He, re- he refers to the Exodus generation yet again who did not listen to God through Moses when warned. They did not escape. How much less will we escape if we don't listen to this warning from heaven? This language of how much less, how much more is familiar, isn't it? Throughout the, the letter, the author's been comparing things, particularly to Jesus, comparing the, the old and new covenants here he's comparing the rejection of God's warning then and rejecting his warning now. Back then, they wandered in the wilderness as a result of not listening. Refusing the revelation of the Son of God speaking from heaven is far greater. Back then, his voice shook the earth and people said, please, no more words. In the future, he will shake the heavens and the earth. He references here the prophet Haggai, who writes this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. There's an intensified judgment to come. Excuse me, the final judgment. Listen about the final judgment. There's no way it doesn't happen. Everything will be shaken except his kingdom. Daniel says, he speaks of of an everlasting dominion. This consummation of this kingdom is as powerful as it is certain. You can't stop it. You can't shake it. When it comes in its fullness, you will want to be on the side of the king. Turning away from Jesus is worse than what Esau did. It's more serious than rejecting God at Sinai because Jesus is greater than Moses and Abel. Remember, the Son of God is speaking. The author comes full circle, doesn't he, to the first words in the letter. Remember that first passage in Hebrews 1? Jesus is the final word of God. The results of refusing him who's speaking from the right hand of God, the results of covering your ears at this final and perfect word, is absolutely terrifying. Back then, Sinai shook when he spoke. The earth quaked. Animals killed as they contacted the mountain. People begging, please no more words. That's nothing like the shaking that's going to rattle the entire created universe to the core. All creation will be judged at the end of the age. Second Peter 3 that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. First John 2, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The only thing that lasts are those who listen to his word and do his will because they're part of the kingdom. We are really at odds with the world on this point. As Philip says, throughout our lives, 
We're taught by the world that beliefs, spiritual things, come and go. The things that matter are physical things. Money, houses, achievements. Don't let spiritual considerations interfere with these really important things. In that view, when things get tough spiritually, temptation, suffering, persecution, why would you stay? So much easier to abandon the faith. We see in Hebrews the opposite counsel. People had their properties confiscated. I mean, that's no fun. Work hard for something, people taking it. Lose your job, lose your house. Risk physical harm, imprisonment. In the world's thinking, why wouldn't you just change your religious position, right? When in fact the opposite is true. In the scriptures we've just read. All these physical material considerations, it's all passing Away. It will all be shaken out, and the only thing left standing is the kingdom of God and all those who belong to the king. Remember, at this time in history, think about when this, this was written. Rome was a juggernaut, okay, a force like no other, militarily, politically, geographically. Contrast that to Christianity at this time, a fledgling religion. If you were to go back then and ask someone on the street, which do you think is going to last, Christianity or the Roman Empire? (laughs) They would have laughed in your face. Open your eyes, man. Everything is Rome. The power of the Caesar is unstoppable. His power is evident everywhere. That's cute. You have your little church with your church family and your weird beliefs, but good luck. Rome? No Contest. Paul Scrabeck, one of our pastors, recently sent me an article by Alastair Begg. He writes uh, about, and it's, it's a great article, he writes about starting to feel like we're in exile, like the early Christians were, where the church is becoming irrelevant or even evil to our culture. And we can be tempted to see things the way the world does. Is the church of Jesus Christ this appendage? on the side of American society, irrelevant to the real powers in the culture, in the nation, in the world? Or is the church a force against which even the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Begg tells this great story of Lord Reith, who in the 1920s helped to establish the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, and served as its first director general. He was a somewhat severe man, Begg writes, from the highlands of Scotland. As the BBC began to be carried along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 1960s, a young producer stood up in a meeting and said to Lord Reith that the world was changing and that the BBC need not continue with its religious programming because people were no longer interested in religion, he said. And the church was becoming increasingly obsolete. Lord Reith, who was six foot six, told this young man to take his seat. Then he stood up and said this. The church will stand at the grave of the BBC. (laughs) And you know what Begg says? It will. It will stand when the BBC and CNN and Fox News will dwindle 
and die. God's kingdom will stand when every organization and institution and nation and empire meets its end. It is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So the question for you is this. Are you part of this kingdom or not? Because if you're not, you will be shaken to the core with the rest of creation. Verse 27, only those attached to the king, Jesus Christ, will not be shaken. He's a consuming fire. His kingdom will not end. You can't stop it. You can't shake it. Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. As Guthrie says, there's no middle ground in the things of God. The word must be received or rejected. For those who reject the word, there exists no escape from God's inevitable judgment. At the end, a person either resides as a, king, as a citizen of God's unshakable kingdom or perishes with the rest of the universe. In the Old Covenant, when animals were placed on the sacrificial altar, fire consumed them. Those indelible images in the minds of the Israelites were stark about God's seriousness as it relates to sin. And make no mistake about Lord Jesus in the New Testament. God is just as serious about sin and obedience as he was in the Old Testament. He's no more tolerant of sin and rebellion as he was then. Just read the book of Revelation. The images of Jesus' return are terrifying for any who are not with him. Despite the false teaching that pervades so much of so-called Christianity today, God does not exist to meet your needs or to help you achieve your dreams. That God doesn't exist. This God is a consuming fire. So how do we respond finally? And the answer is with proper worship. Offer God's service in gratitude, reverence, and awe. Let me read the last two verses again. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. If we are in Christ, we are blessed. Ours is the kingdom, and it is unshakable. So let's be grateful. One clear and ordained means of gratitude is the Lord's Supper. In it, we recognize the power and glory of our Savior and his salvation. And this recalibrates us, doesn't it? It reminds us to press on to Zion, despite what's happening in our lives. It reminds us that it's his righteousness that justifies, his payment that redeems, his Holy Spirit that empowers, and his word that guarantees the future reality of our perfection and glory. The regular pattern of the Lord's Supper, so important for proper worship and thanksgiving. How about gratitude in our service? Helping in Sunday school. Ushering. Helping in Awana. Writing notes of encouragement to people in our congregation. This is acceptable worship. Every member ministry who are all servants of our king and serve one another for his glory. Now, does it feel good to worship? Of course it does, because that's what we were designed to do. But that's not why we do it. It's not about us. It's about him. We don't worship to make ourselves feel better. We worship because God deserves it. 
He deserves it all. Your life, your energy, your money, your time, it's all about him. And he says we're to do this with reverence and awe. Some translations say godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. A fundamental problem in the broader church today is a serious lack of understanding of who God is in his holiness. Many people view God just a really good version of us. We create God in our image, and that's not who he is at all. He's completely other than us, in a completely different category. Listen to some scriptures, Exodus 24. Now, the appearance of the, appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 9. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you is a consuming fire, is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. Isaiah 30. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury. His tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with a sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. When we do not comprehend his holiness, we don't worship because we don't understand our situation. We don't appreciate the cross. We don't understand why there are not many ways to God. If you begin to understand just a fraction of God's holiness, you will not be amazed there's only one way to God. What will absolutely confound you is that there is a way to God. This God. Isaiah 33, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Impossible. What seems impossible is made possible in Jesus Christ. He's the bridge to this God. You can draw near the consuming fire only in Jesus. The only way to approach this God, and he's the only God, without being destroyed, is through the blood of Christ. Those in him can approach with boldness, but not flippantly or carelessly. Jesus has made perfect atonement. So to turn your back on that is to ultimately reject God and his provision for your salvation. Refusing him who speaks from heaven means you will encounter God as a consuming fire with nothing to protect you from the raging fire of God's perfect and rightful and inevitable judgment. C.S. Lewis in the Narnia story, The Silver Chair, illustrates this powerfully. Aslan the lion is a depiction of the Lord. The adventurer, Jill, comes upon a stream of water and she's dying of thirst. But this lion is sitting calmly by the water. Terrified, she stops in her tracks. The lion invites her, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Dying of thirst and drawn by the rippling stream, the girl steps a bit forward. Will you promise to... Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, she, she asked. I make no promise, said the lion. Drawn closer, she wonders aloud, do you eat girls? 
I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, he replies. Jill recoils at this, concluding, I dare not come and drink. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, cries Jill, drawn yet a step closer by her need of refreshment. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. But the lion responds, there is no other stream. As Philip says, if you're going to have your thirst of your soul filled by the waters of eternal life, then you're going to have to deal with this kind of God. He will not move out of the way for you. He will not become more palatable, a a chummier kind of God. He will never be safe. But he's the Savior, the God of majesty and grace, the God who shakes the heavens and the earth, but gives to his own a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Are you a part of that kingdom? The only way to be a part of that kingdom is if you know the king. Embrace this lion and let him save you. Let him change you. Drink from his water of eternal life. Hold fast to Jesus and the grace he offers in the new covenant. That's the only way. You have one life to live. To paraphrase R.C. Sproul, why would you ever turn away from Jesus? In light of God's terrifying holiness and certain eternal judgment, Jesus is the only hope we have. And praise be to God, he is hope enough. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for the Lion of Judah. We're grateful that you retain holiness, though it frightens us. But we can come now in Jesus and be forgiven and find rest and refreshment, nourishment, eternal nourishment. Lord, for those here this morning who do not know you that way, may they turn from their sin, their selfishness, their self-reliance, and start running to Zion. Embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior to follow his word, to receive the cleansing of forgiveness in that water of life. We pray for Jesus' sake. In his glory alone, amen.